If you've been enjoying AMSA AdLib so far, please let others know about the show by giving it a rating in iTunes. Just visit amsa.org slash adlib for quick links to our reviews page, or you can just search for AMSA AdLib in the iTunes store. And don't miss any upcoming episodes. Be sure to subscribe today. Welcome to AMSA AdLib. This is Christine. I'm here with AdLib senior producer Pete Thompson. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Christine. So what are you going to talk to us about today? Well, this week I had a chance to talk to Jeff Kochi, um, who is AMSA's Director of Experiences. And Jeff's been pretty busy uh, getting ready for the fall conferences the next couple weeks, so it was a great opportunity to, to um, have a few minutes with him, kind of thinking through some of the themes of those conferences coming up, um, especially in terms of the New York conference. And he had um, some really interesting thoughts on technology uh, and ethics, um, but not the usual sort of shiny devices um, question, but more about some of the pitfalls some of the challenges that the physicians are going to have to deal with in a larger sense in patient care. Jeff, I was looking at one of the themes for the New York conference the other day in terms of the involvement of technology. And I was wondering, you know, a lot of times in healthcare and medicine, we talk about technology and we talk about what's shiny and new or, you know, what's kind of next around the corner and how it's going to save us all. In any of that, do we are we, are we losing the human connection? Are we losing a connection to humanistic medicine? I mean, what's the cost? Well, I mean, like everything in life, it's not, it's neither all good nor all bad. There's, there's, uh, you know, there's aspects to the incorporation of technology, which are good. And there are aspects to the incorporation of technology, which at the very least present challenges, if not an actual loss to um, some aspect of humanistic care. And I think that there are a lot of folks who are thinking about that, that part of it right now. Um, in a lot of different ways with a lot of different nuance. You know, there are already a lot of concerns about the incorporation of technology into the practice of healthcare, and more specifically into the space between the doctor and the patient or between the health provider and the patient. Because if you, you know, if you look at an iPad or an, or an iPhone or any kind of portable device, it can physically be a barrier between the patient and the provider. Um, oftentimes, physicians and especially medical trainees like residents and medical students who are now openly encouraged to use uh, technology in at the point of delivery of care are oftentimes criticized for that piece of technology becoming a barrier, a physical barrier. There's a there's a story I heard of uh, from a physician, a pediatrician, in fact, who had received a drawing from one of his uh, pediatrics patients, and it was a drawing um, of his office, and he was uh, in the examining room along with the patient and um, the patient's family, perhaps the mother and and father. And uh, what was so striking about this drawing is that the child had drawn the physician facing away from her, staring at his computer screen. And when he received the drawing, he was rather horrified by the unintentional uh, communication of that, of that distance or separation that she, the patient, perceived um, by virtue of the incorporation of the technology into the, into the examination room. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, technology has the potential to bring people together, especially when we think about um, sort of these Web 2.0 type applications uh, that are more socially focused. 
um, the applications of social media to create online communities uh, for patients and for providers um, to engage in conversations about, um, you know, about ongoing care and about health maintenance. Um, and uh, perhaps perhaps that, you know, that's a really exciting example. Um, and then there are some examples that are even more cutting edge than that. For example, the application of crowdsourcing platforms that allow clinicians and uh, practitioners to actually share information um, from their experiences that help to that help to create a, a more robust differential diagnosis, for example. And this is especially important uh, when when clinicians are dealing with a patient who presents with, say, a rare set of symptoms or something that the doctor hasn't seen before. Uh, and these types of technologies that facilitate crowdsourcing of information can actually facilitate uh, the differential diagnosis and can make those can make that more accurate and can make ultimately the diagnosis um, achievable in a in a quicker way and more efficient way um, and which when you think about it those are actually two of the three goals of the uh, of the IHI's triple aim increasing the efficiency of healthcare practice um, and in increasing the you know the overall quality of care. So I know in New York, uh, at the New York conference, one of the sessions is around the Human Diagnosis Project, which I understand is one of these crowdsourcing efforts. To what degree do those efforts also sort of help remove, or maybe removing gatekeepers isn't inherently a, a, a positive or negative, but is there an element of, of removing a gatekeeper on care at all? Well, I think, I think contrary to the notion that it's removing gatekeepers, I actually think it's opening gates. It's opening um, gates to communication. It's opening channels to communication and to information sharing um, between the providers of care who may, in fact, be separated by many, many miles, time zones, continents, in fact, uh, and by utilizing technology in this way, it's not opening up in my sense, it's not opening up a, the potential for uh, information run wild uh, because the information is being shared among clinicians who are utilizing it uh, in ways being mindful of, of, of their own expertise and they're using uh, this information in conjunction with the evidence-based data that's presented in journals. Uh, at, you know, journals and publications and sources of information of that type. But this provides sort of a freer, more accessible way of sharing knowledge, which uh, given today's globalized reality, I mean, patients are constantly traveling and there's mass migration and diseases certainly don't uh, adhere to geopolitical boundaries. Uh, so there are real needs to kind of break down some of these uh, barriers that have existed in the past, such as geographical barriers and time zone barriers and doctors practicing in one hospital system and uh, other doctors practicing in another hospital system. Breaking down those barriers or overcoming them is probably a better way of saying it um, by utilizing these types of crowdsourcing technologies. This should enhance uh, actually the quality of care and the effectiveness of the of the physicians who are utilizing the data and utilizing the information. 
And it's funny you mentioned the uh, the de- technology, especially specifically physical devices, sort of acting as barriers. Because as you were saying that, I had just lifted my iPad off of the off the table to take some notes while Jeff was talking, um, and you know I certainly have recognized that in my my own clinical care as a patient. You know, sort of seeing how physicians, even though they don't want to have to be, are struggling with how to balance the physical aspect of this technology, which they, and they recognize the importance and the utility of it. But right now, dragging laptops around, trying to hold it with one hand, you know, while typing it or choosing to set it on a counter and having to not face me, you know, um, and a lot of these decisions seem to be make, being made by folks at the line, or at least maybe the technology isn't there. Is there a set of recommendations that people have at this point on how to deal with that? I, I don't. I'm not personally aware of a formalized set of recommendations that have been developed yet. I, I, I'm certainly aware of lots and lots of folks who are who are trying to f- figure out what those recommendations would be because this is yet this is just another tool in um, it's just another tool that has clinical applicability in the same way that a stethoscope has is a tool that has clinical applicability, and these tools are are effective or not effective simply by how they're used and in the way in which um, the physicians incorporate them into that relationship between them and their patients. So anything can either be a barrier or could be um, uh, anything, any physical tool or object that's used in the clinical setting could be a barrier to the humanistic delivery of care or it could be a facilitator for that. And I think that technology, if we are very thoughtful about um, about the way that we use it, and if we're thoughtful even more so about the way that we continue to engage with patients as humans, as people, um, and if we centrally focus on that human element that is common between the provider and the patient, then the technology shouldn't be a barrier in the end. It, um, it's just another thing that is useful to a certain degree uh, and in certain contexts within the clinical setting. Electronic medical records, are, it's an interesting thing because physicians hate them and there's a lot of resistance to them. But at the same time, there are some patient advocacy groups that are really advocating for the further development of electronic medical records because there is the opportunity in the electronic medical records for patients to have not only access to those records but to actually be able to co-create and co-manage them and so it's a it's an it's an interesting way of looking at an electronic medical record as a as a tool for increasing social engagement between clinicians and patients. Like, yeah, one, like, like one example note. is one example is the Open Notes platform, right. uh, which is being developed uh, by a team uh, based at Harvard. And you know that's an ex- that's an excellent example of a reframing of a of of frankly a technology that hasn't received a lot of positive press. Uh, doctors in general are are either distrustful of electronic medical records, somewhat resistant to using them, 
um, or you know, or outright hostile to them in some cases. It's it, it is hard to find physicians who have a strong love and affection for electronic medical records. Part of the issue there is just in the way that the technology has been rolled out, and um, perhaps without the adequate amount of training and socialization to the way in which clinicians can can really work with electronic medical records in an effective way. Um, but I'm really I'm really interested in what the Open Notes team is doing because they're not just they're not just tackling a technology issue they're really they're really addressing a cultural issue and they're framing it in uh, in exactly that way this is an opportunity to increase engagement with patients and to actually position patients as drivers of their own healthcare because if the patient has access to the electronic to their electronic medical record or their medical record in general, which they have the right to have access to and should, but historically that's been very difficult because these records exist in paper form, in files, in hospitals, in clinics, etc. Um, but if we move them into an electronic format, then they become accessible to the patient uh, and the patient can then be a co-creator and a co-manager of these records, which are not just any old records, these are the records of, of our individual health and wellness and disease and, and illness experiences. I imagine that the barrier that, for example, with open notes, you're trying to get over really is that cultural one like you're talking about. For instance, we are using increasingly like cloud technologies and we share a lot of our work product in many industries. And, you know, there's a there's a barrier that, you know, people don't like seeing your you're afraid about people seeing your half baked ideas. But like you say, I mean, you know, patients have been entitled to this information. It's not secret. You know, uh, I and I know I've retrieved medical records for um, my son's hospitalization one time just because I have some weird obsession with kind of keeping records of that stuff. And it was an enormous pain to acquire. Mm-hmm. Um especially since the information is stored electronically, yet I was only allowed to retrieve it in a paper format that's in this proprietary dialogue, in this encoded language, um, you know, and and it makes it sort of deeply inaccessible. But it seems like that's such a huge hurdle for doctors to overcome. I mean, like... It is. It's a big hurdle. And and the the words that you were using, proprietary and ownership, and, you know, that is really getting to the heart of it. Who owns this information? And the and the answer, historically, has been the the care providers, the hospital systems, or the clinics effectively own the information. But as patients are increasingly empowered with more information that's accessible to them simply through the internet and through increasing accessibility of research data and you know this data is out there and it's not that difficult to search and find um, patients are becoming much more informed about their own health and about health in general and trends you know once you have access to that information you you become empowered by that and you want more and you can see as a patient what power that would have for you as an individual to really take ownership of your own health. And uh, the culture of medicine has been 
moving towards this notion that patients and providers are co-creators of the health context and are co-decision makers. And we have already, to to a large extent, moved beyond the paternalistic notion the medical records perhaps is a is is one of the last remaining remnants of that paternalistic system and it is a hard one to get over because there are certain i mean there are a lot of really important things to consider privacy patient safety this information is sensitive information and it should not just be freely available but to the individuals who are working together the patients, the provider team, they all should have access to that information uh, in in ways that make sense for their different roles. And that's the other thing as well. No one is saying that patients and providers have the same roles. There are different roles. And access to the information may be or perhaps should be tailored to those different roles so that it makes sense to the individuals who are accessing it but ultimately, we have got to let go of this idea that doctors and, and more generally the care providers are the owners of, of the information. It is ultimately the patient's life. We're talking about their life story, their, their narrative, um, you know, their, their various illness narratives, um, their life experiences with health and wellness and, and illness and disease. And it's, it's theirs. It's theirs. We have to give it to them. We have to find a way to share that information um, that reflects the cultural values of today's medicine and tomorrow's medicine, not not yesterday's medicine. When I got our son's records, once I started figuring out how, like, what part matters, sort of, I mean, it was like a, the document is like 160 pages or something like that, and, it, and kind of figuring out what parts of each of those pages tell a story, and you know, I, and I obviously had had lived through the experience myself, but it, but reading through it, you know, it, it frankly was a, a gripping sort of narrative. Mm-hmm. What I was seeing was the information recorded in the best and most efficient way for another care provider to receive information about my child's health history that may be useful down the road or during that period of care. I'm reading it as like a story. Well, you know, I think there's a, I think there's an underappreciation for um, medical records as a form of, um, I wouldn't call it literature, but it, it certainly is a form of writing. Uh, there's obviously a style to it. There's obviously a tradition to it, um, and I think it goes underappreciated for that. Um, what I find really interesting from kind of a narrative and sociological and cultural perspective is that, you know, opening the opening the medical records to patients and providing a space for them to write into their notes and co-create is going to, it will change the voice and the tone and the style and the standards of medical records. But that could be for the better. I mean, perhaps, perhaps this, you know, this recent move toward, uh, toward acknowledging the importance of narrative medicine, for example, in the medical humanities, this may shift the tradition of, the, of writing notes 
toward a more of a style that actually does focus on the things that are important to the patient and not just the things that are important to the clinician or that are important to communicate from one clinician to another. These notes tell a story, but I think unfortunately they've only told a portion of the story. And especially as healthcare becomes more portable, the stories are going to have to become also more portable and they're going to have to also become more easily translated from one language to another. And by that I mean from the clinical technical jargon that trained physicians and and nurses and healthcare providers understand to a more accessible language that everyone can understand. And that could be quite revolutionary. Thank you, Jeff, very much. Thank you. This was fun. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to AMSA AdLib through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a rating in the iTunes store. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself with help from Carol Clark. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Deborah Hall is AMSA's national president. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear covered on AMSA AdLib. Email us at adlib at amsa.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. Improve your performance on rotations. Provide the excellent care that your patients deserve, and distinguish yourself among your peers as a student leader in the social mission of medicine. Attend an AMSA Fall Conference and enhance your professional development by engaging with experts, clinicians, and researchers in topics that aren't well covered in the medical school curriculum. The first AMSA Fall Conference will be held in New York City on November 14th. The second will be in Chicago on November 21st. For more information, please visit amsafallconference.org.